0: Spending a couple of months in the uh, last couple of chapters of First Kings, walking through the uh, surprising story, the fascinating story of Elijah the prophet, who uh, shows up in that uh, unique period of time and uh, is used mightily of God. We're in First Kings chapter uh, 17, verses 7 to 16. Hear then the word of God. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. And then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there, because I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose, and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her, and he said, Bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and he said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour and a jar and a little oil and a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as you have said, but... First, make me a little cake and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and she did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of Yahweh, that he spoke by Elijah. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning to give you our hearts in worship. We have gathered to give you our lives in worship. And so even now, as we come to your word, we want not only to gather information, uh, but we long to experience your transformation Uh, We want, Father, that you would use your word to open our hearts and our minds and to change our lives so that we might have uh, in our vision the things that you envision and that we might be uh, obedient to what you have put before us. These things we ask and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have you enjoyed some of these sunny days after all that rain? Pretty nice, the beauty of a blue sky, you know, no clouds in it, sun on your face. It's pretty awesome after all that rain. But like most things in creation, too much of any good thing becomes a bad thing. And there's not hardly anything that we have, whether it's food or drink and sunshine. that A little bit can be a good thing and too much can be a bad thing. The rain is a good thing. And we've had a little bit too much of it. It starts to become a bad thing. Unrelenting sunshine. No clouds in the sky for months and years. And the ground becomes parched and scorched, so we may start asking for rain again at some point. But that is God in all things in moderation is where the beauty is and where life is. And so, too many blue skies for Elijah too many blue skies for Israel. In verse 7, he says, After a little while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. situation started to become desperate. You can imagine Elijah sitting by the brook through those months. We don't know how long he was there. We think it was probably something in the... In the Uh, In the year range, something like that, that he was by the brook before he goes to Zarephath. And you can imagine him sitting there watching it over the years. It slowly, you know, slows down and slows down and comes down to a trickle and, you know, begin to see it um, start to just pool up. Maybe even get a little stagnant as he watches, maybe getting a little nervous. That's the way our faith is often tested, isn't it? As we see the things that we don't have a lot of control over. Um, <clears throat> sometimes they, if they dwindle or begin to be taken away. I wonder if he started to have doubts. You know, is he trying to trickle down? You know, well, now what? You know, Now what is he going to do? Am I going to dry up? I'm going to be left here to dry up like the brook? I'd like to know what's next. I don't know about you. I like to, I like to have a plan. And long before it gets down to a trickle, I kind of like to know where, what's next how this is going to work out. I like having money in the bank. right? I, I like having it stored up. I would much rather camp by a lake than by a river, right? I mean, because I, I would much rather have a sense of the, the reservoir, the resource. There's a certain amount of control in it for us, but, but the Lord waits until the stream is completely dry, which is often His way. He doesn't always give you uh, the abundance stored up. He often makes you Trust Him. Learn to walk with Him in faith. A.W. Pink said, Faith is not occupied with difficulties, but with Him with whom all things are possible. Faith is not occupied with circumstances, but with the God of the circumstances. And so He often brings us to the brink. He often brings us to the edge, to the 11th hour, before He steps in. And graciously does what only he can do. And so it's only then that the word of the Lord came to him. In verse 8, Then, when there was no rain in the land and the brook dried up, then the word of the Lord came to him and told him to arise and go. Verse 9, Arise and go to Zarephath. I love the symmetry between 9 and 10. I wish it was this kind of symmetry in my life. I'm thinking, I hope that for all of us we would have that. In verse 9, it says, arise and go. In verse 10 says, so he arose and he went. Right? There's this exactness of response. God says, arise and go. And so we arise and go. With that exactness, with that precision, with the obedience of a heart of faith and submission to do what God tells us to do. Because it is only as we are obedient to his word, it's only as we're walking with him in the way of obedience and doing all that he has commanded us that we find his provision. It's the way Elijah has been finding it. He was sent to Kareth and he said, if you go to Kareth and he says, and I will provide for you there. Not going to do it here I'm not going to do it at some other brook, but he says, go to Kareth. And he goes to Kareth, and there he is provided for. In the way of obedience, as he does what God commands him to do. And the same will come as he now goes to Zarephath. If he stays by the creek where God had originally told him to go, and sometimes we like to camp longer at places than we're supposed to, you know, he may, if he stays there, to stay is to starve. To stay is to die of thirst. To go is to live. It's a way of obedience. You go where he tells us to go. We take the next step. He arose and went. It must have felt like a fool's errand. (laughs) He went to Zarephath. Zarephath is a small town. If you look it up, it's a small town in ancient Phoenicia. Uh, Phoenicia is that kingdom that sits above uh, Israel, right on the coast of the Mediterranean. Its main cities were Tyre and Sidon. You know, a seafaring nation there on the edge of the Mediterranean. Zarephath is somewhere right in between Tyre and Sidon in Phoenicia. Like all of, or most of the world at that point, it was now part of the Roman Empire. And it was part of the the province of Syria, which is, uh, so we talk about the Syro-Phoenician woman. She was a woman in Sidon, but part of the Roman province of Syria in the ancient kingdom of Phoenicia. And he tells him to go to Zarephath, to a widow. Now, it must have felt like a fool's errand because he's being told at this point in the game to leave Israel. Right? This is not part of Israel. This is not part of the kingdom. He tells him to leave Israel, to go to the Gentiles, and not just to any Gentiles, but to go to Jezebel's country, right? to go to the, the home and the origin of Baal worship. Right, there's some irony in it to hide in plain sight that they're looking for him in in Israel, and and he's gonna be sitting in the center of Jezebel's kingdom ruled by her father, and hide in plain sight. Leave Israel, go to Jezebel's country, to the home of Baal, to a widow. First the ravens that he had commanded, and now one of the poorest and the weakest widows in Jezebel's Baal-worshipping Gentile country. The opposite of what I would expect. I think it's probably the opposite of what Elijah would have expected. You know, you had me by the camp Careth, and now maybe if you're going to send me to a win- widow. You know, where in Israel might you send me? Where are the remnants within our kingdom that you might place me? But God often does the exact opposite of what we think. Have you not ever experienced when you think God ought to do X or Y, especially when it concerns you, usually I have a pretty good idea what God ought to do concerning me next. But as often or not, what God does is something very surprising. He, su- he supplies in ways that we don't expect. He commands us to go where we don't expect to go. And so he sends Elijah to the opposite of we might, what we might have hoped but there in verse 9, he says, he's commanded a widow to feed you. Commanded a widow to feed you. Just as back in verse 4, he said, I have commanded the ravens to feed you. Commanded the ravens to feed you. Now I've commanded a widow to feed you. I've commanded her. And So he gets there in verse 10. And it says, and so he arose and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, check it out. How about that? A widow is there, gathering sticks. He calls out to her, and he asks her for a little bit of water. Right? There's a widow at the gate, collecting sticks. And he almost says, it like, behold, that this is uh, <clears throat> you know, God's provision, a divine appointment. God commanded her to be there. He said, I'm going to send you to a widow. And he walks into the gate, and there she is. He has the appearance of being accidental. Probably in the widow's experience, it was accidental. In her experience, she was hungry and starving and about to have her last meal, and she's out gathering sticks. And in her experience, it is accidental. A chance meeting. But we know, and God tells us, that he has commanded the widow. He has arranged This meeting, God's hand is upon it. The Lord has sovereignly and providentially ordered the circumstances so that when Elijah arrives there, she would be there gathering sticks. Right? And when when we hear that God commanded her, this is not the way, I don't think, at least from from her response, the way Elijah heard God's word to arise and go. When When he commanded the widow, his hand is more secret. His hand is unseen, his work in her life, what he did to ordain and to orchestrate all those events so that she would be at the gate when Elijah got there. He commanded her to be there, but she went of her own accord looking for sticks to make dinner. But I ask you, do you believe in the sovereign God of the Bible? Sometimes we think God is sovereign, but we put a lot of limits on it we have a very small idea of what God is capable of or the way that he works in our lives and orders things in our world how sometimes we have more of a practical you know uh, clockmaker view of God where he is he has things going and he'll intervene here and there you know if i ask him to but otherwise You know, he's somewhat removed unless we really call on him to do something. But we're given a picture here and throughout the entire Old Testament where you will see that the image of God is that his hand is on everything. That he's ordering and working in all things. He's commanding the ravens and he's commanding the widows and he is ordering all things according to the purpose of his will, bringing them to fruition. Do you not know that your father is working all things together for your good? orchestrating and commanding that things should fall out the way He designs them for your good, for our good. That He is sovereign. There are no chance encounters, only divine appointments. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. See, the widow planned in, in her mind, in the mind of a woman, she planned to gather wood, but it was the purpose of God that she should be there to receive and to serve Elijah, that she should be there at that exact moment, that as he walked in, she would be the one who would provide what he needed. I believe we would have a lot more contentment of our lives if we would learn to cultivate the holy habit of seeing God's hand of seeing His sovereignty, of bowing our knees to it. If rather than seeing random and chance events and rather than just thinking, well, it was just fate or the various ways that we sometimes stumble through life thinking things are just happening to us and wondering where God is, rather to have our eyes opened and understand that He is working all these things together, that He has commanded that it should be so, that He is sovereign and that He has His hand upon you and upon all of your circumstances. We would have so much more contentment if we bowed the knee to what God was doing. So we spent about 100 miles, I think, on the road from the brook in Zarephath to, uh, to Sidon. If you look on, a, on the maps of where we think these places were, it was a long and arduous journey. There's a drought in the land. Food is scarce. He's been traveling. He's tired. He's hungry. He's thirsty. He arrives at the gate and he breaks the ice with this woman with a request for water. So apparently there's still some water source in the city. She goes to get him water without too much, uh, I guess, question about it. He may not know yet if this is the widow. and We don't know that. He said, I've commanded a widow there. There's probably a number of them there. So he breaks the ice and asks her to get him some water. But even as she goes to get the water and he finds some compliance in her, then he tests the water further. And he asked her to bring him some food. Under normal circumstances, it's a simple request. Laws of hospitality would would make it a very simple thing for her to provide some food to a stranger, a traveler, a foreigner, to give him something to eat on request. But in these circumstances, the, 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 the request that he makes of her is overwhelming. And she doesn't know what to do with it. Verse 12, we're told, and she said to him, is the Lord your God lives? That's a standard greeting to greet them in the, in the name. It doesn't show much faith at this point. She's being polite. Is the Lord your God lives? I have nothing baked. I don't have any food at the house. I can't bring you a cake. And I've only got a little bit of flour in a jar. I got a little bit of oil in a jug. And I'm going to gather some sticks so that I can prepare it for my son and I. So that we may eat it and die. She says she's on the verge of starvation. I am, we are literally down to gathering some sticks so I can cook my last morsel of food and my son and I can sit down and wait for death. And, and so in a word, no. I don't have anything for you, buddy. You know, I got nothing for you. <clears throat> you are on your own, you know, maybe in better times, but, but not today. But God had commanded the widow. And that changes everything. right? God had commanded this widow. And so her heart is soft. God is at work. In 13 and 14, He speaks to her. He speaks gospel to her. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake. Bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the, the flour, the jar of flour is not going to be spent, the jug of oil is not going to become empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Right? It's good news. Right? It's gospel. Don't be afraid. God is going to provide for you and for me. Right? He's providing for him, and in doing that, he provides for this family. And he tells her then to not be afraid, but he tests her faith because he asked her to go and make food for him first. Now, if you're a mother and you've only got this much food left for you and your son, your child, who gets to eat first? All right. so his request, go first and make food for me. There's going to be little or nothing left if she does that, right? But make food for me first, because I'm telling you, if you do that, then it's not going to run out. You and your son will eat, not only today, but for many days, that God is going to save you from this famine. He's going to save you from these circumstances, but you're going to have to go and make me food. You're going to have to make my dinner with what you got left. So there's this call for faith on the widow to to go and put her trust that God would provide for her. And she does respond in faith in verse 15, right? She went and she did as Elijah said. And, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The widow responds in faith. And why does she respond in faith? And why does she go and make him food? Because God had commanded her. Because God was at work. He's able to cause us to will and to do of his good pleasure. And God had commanded her. And so the first thing that that happens when he gets there is she gives him water and food. Exactly as God said, I've commanded a widow to provide for you, to feed you. The Lord is working in her heart. Just like Lydia. It made me think of Lydia, the seller of purple cloth, when Paul is talking and then what it says about her. Says that the Lord opened her heart to listen to what Paul said. Right? How the Lord opened her heart so that she would listen to what Paul said. You see that in the widow here, who is basically saying, I got nothing for you. Right? There, there, you know, the cupboard is bare, buddy. No. And then with just that call, the Lord your God, the Lord God is going to provide for us. Her heart is moved, her heart is opened. She responds in faith. Like Rahab who received the spies. The Lord made her willing and made her able to respond in faith and obedience. She believed that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was going to take care of her and her son. Her heart shifted from trusting in Baal to provide for her and her son to trusting the word of this prophet that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is going to save her and her son. She believed him. Perhaps it was credit to her, to credited to her as righteousness. Chosen by God not just to be saved from the famine, but saved from her idolatry, her heart turning to the God of Israel in hope of salvation. Matthew 10.41, Jesus says that the one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And we get the sense in this story that indeed if she received the prophet and received the prophet's word and responded in faith and trusted in his God to save her, that she indeed shares in his reward. That God saves her. And God does what He says, as He always does. Verse 16, the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug become empty, according to the word of Yahweh that He spoke to Elijah. His word does not return void. It was as He said that it would be. And He saves Elijah, and He saves the widow, and saves her son. Sorry. There we go. As we hear this story, we can't understand the full impact or the full meaning of the story without jumping ahead uh, 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 800 years or something like that and and stepping into one of Jesus' stories. Because there's a story in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus is in Nazareth. Okay, I can't walk around anymore. Where Jesus is in Nazareth. Right, So he is in the synagogue and he is uh, preaching on a Sunday morning and he pulls out the scroll and he reads to them from the book of Isaiah Right, and he says that this is being fulfilled in your hearing. It's a, it's a passage about Messiah, about himself. That he will heal the the lame and cause the blind to see and he will deliver the oppressed. And even as he is reading the scripture and telling them that it is fulfilled in their hearing and presenting himself to them as an object of faith, as Messiah, as so often he is able to do, he is able to tell that they are not responding well to him. that that this is Nazareth, you know, that a prophet is not accepted in his own town. And so he is anticipating their unbelief and their rejection of him. And so what he does is, sensing that that he is not being accepted in this moment, he tells them about Elijah, right? He tells them this story to explain what is happening and what is going to happen, right? So in Luke chapter 4, 25 and 26 he says this but in truth I tell you there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. There were a lot of widows in Israel There were a lot of places, that's what I was saying, that God did the opposite of what you kind of expected him to do. It's not what Elijah would have thought, that he was going to send him to Jezebel's country, to a widow there. And Jesus says, yeah, there were a lot of options in Israel, but Elijah was sent to help and save a widow, but not a Jewish one. The Lord passed over all the widows in Israel and sent Elijah to a Gentile. And chose to use him to save her and her family. And Jesus is standing before them on a, on a Sabbath morning, teaching them from the word of God. Presenting himself to them. And even as they are rejecting him, he identifies himself with Elijah. This is how it was with Elijah. Right? He was rejected in Israel. right? This is the beginning of the suffering of the prophets. And as he's rejected in Israel, God sends him to the Gentiles. And he brings salvation. It's just a taste. It's just one family. But he brings a foretaste of salvation to the Gentiles. And Jesus' point is that the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles, who, unlike them, on that Sabbath morning, going to send it to the Gentiles, who will receive it and who will be saved. He's pointing ahead to the worldwide church. He's pointing ahead that when, when God is going to break off branches from Israel and create space for the Gentiles and create a new church that is Jew and Gentile, a worldwide global church that breaks the bounds of Israel, that that extends beyond the borders of that little country and begins to take in to its own borders those who would put their faith and trust in him. This is what Thabiti and Abwili commenting on this. He says, that is what Jesus preaches here. Israel will be cut off and Gentiles will be brought in. Israel will be cut off and they were, he was being cut off from Israel right there in that sermon. Right there in that moment as they were rejecting him. He was being cut off from them or they were being cut off from him. And so Romans 11:17, as it says, some of the branches will be broken off. And you, although you are a wild olive shoot, Gentiles, you will be grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Right? He's pointing to a time that we all know because we have the, you know, hindsight is 2020, the advantage of time, to see what Jesus is pointing to, what his own experience is leading him to preach on that Sabbath morning that God's kingdom is global. John MacArthur says, Jesus' point, which must have shocked and outraged the audience, was that God would save an outcast Gentile woman who admitted her poverty, her bondage, her blindness and oppression, but not a Jew who would not. The implication was that if they refused to abandon their self-righteousness and admit their desperate spiritual need, And they could not be saved, Israelite or not. And they were enraged. If you read the story, this is a story where it says they were so enraged that they took Jesus and they marched him out of town and were marching him up to the crest of a hill with the idea that they were going to throw him off. They were so enraged by the simple thought as he tells the story of Elijah that just as Elijah was sent to the Gentiles, when Israel was unbelieving, that this is what will happen. So let me just note a couple of quick things from that. And the first is that we see Jesus pointing ahead to the full revelation that God, God's intentions are global, that God's intentions have always been global, that God intends to have a worldwide church, and he always has, that God's gracious, gracious purposes extend beyond the narrow bounds of Israel. Genesis twenty-two eighteen. 18, God's speaking to Abraham. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In your offspring, through a Jewish Messiah, will all the nations of the earth be blessed. It is something that we had tastes of throughout the Old Testament. There was always this underlying drive that the nations will be blessed, that the nations will come, that his kingdom will be worldwide. We see it in Psalm 22, 27 to 28. He says, all the nations of the earth, all the nations of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of all the nations shall worship before you. For your kingship belongs, for kingship belongs to Yahweh who rules over the nations. And this is a revelation. It's a revelation to Elijah. It's a revelation to the Jews in Jesus' time that Yahweh, Yahweh there, his covenant name, that Yahweh is king of the nations, that he's not a tribal God, right? That he's not a national deity for a small piece of desert, that Yahweh is king of the nations and king of the earth, that all other gods are no gods at all he rules and he shows his power as he commands a Gentile woman to fulfill his purposes for his people so Paul says in Romans ten twelve, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who will call on him and right, he bestows his riches on all who will call on him with no distinction And sometimes we can get tribal. Sometimes we think that we have start to draw the lines and the boundaries of God's mercy and grace. But he says that his mercy is for all who will call upon him, that God's people are a people of faith. Second, we notice his choice, that he passed over all the most likely candidates. and Not only does he send them to a surprising place in terms of sending him outside of Israel and sending him to the Gentile nations... But he also sends him to the most unlikely candidate for his favor. He opened the heart of a woman, a widow. She was poor. She was starving. She was a Baal worshiper. She was living in the center of the kingdom of God's enemies, the enemies of Israel. You know, the influences that was destroying her even as they were meeting but the Scripture tells us again and again that God chooses the foolish and the weak and the despised. And sometimes we forget this. Sometimes as we look at our neighbors or we look at our coworkers or we look at the person down the pew, I don't know, but as we look around us, sometimes we forget that God saves the least and the lost, the foolish and the weak and the despised, the shame, the wise and the strong, so that no one can boast. Virgin said, God bids his chariot downward roll away from the lofty towers of nobles to the humble cottage of the poorest in all of Sidonia's dominions. And a poor widow woman becomes the object of special grace. The gospel is for everyone. It's for the poor, and it's for the least, and it's for the lowest, and it's for the foreigner, and it's for the immigrant, and it's for his enemies. She was his enemy, as, as all of us were at one time, his enemies. And so even now, as we draw our lines and get tribal, and we look around, and who are our enemies? Sometimes it's very political, whether it's Republicans and Democrats, and sometimes it's lines around the churches. We look at the culture that's going in directions in ways that we don't want it to. And we start thinking that he's a tribal God, right? He belongs to our tribe, right? That he somehow is is, is going to, you know, save only us. And the beauty of it, the power of it, is that we can look around and have no doubt that God can save your coworkers. He can save your neighbors. Even that neighbor that you're thinking of, that you're thinking, except that one. No, that one. That's the one, that's the widow in Seraphath who's starving and poor and, and Baal worshiping and, and amongst his enemies in no possible way. If you had known me before God brought me to himself, I would have been the guy that you would say, no way, so keep going. You know, Work on somebody else because he's not going to be the one to come. Thanks be to God. He takes the least likely candidate and makes them the object of his special grace. So not only should we doubt that he can bring your neighbor or your family members or your co-workers or whoever you're looking at, do you doubt that his grace could reach you? There are times that we think that we're too far out there, that we've done too much, or that we are too at odds, that we are among his enemies. Surely he's angry at me. Surely there's too much distance. He bestows his riches on all will call on him. So finally let me just strike the note of warning that I do believe as Jesus addresses the synagogue and I think it should it should in a sense slap us in the face if Jesus were here this morning he pulled out the scroll and he read from uh, and read from it you know the danger is that for us are the same as the danger is for them they grew up in the church they thought they knew all the answers Right? They were connected to all things Yahweh. Right? They were connected to all things that had to do with God. But somehow they had missed taking hold of Christ by faith. Somehow when Jesus is set before them for all the churchiness that they were a part of, they had not taken hold of Christ. Somehow he had not become into their lives as Lord and King and Savior and Messiah. Somehow that incongruity of being able to be in that sense... Part of it all, and missing it all. Sabidi Anabwili says again, perhaps you've been brought up in the church the way they were raised in the synagogue. You know the language of the church. We know the culture and the rituals of the church. We know the routine. But we don't know Jesus. I think Jesus' sermon is aimed at the nominal believer, those who assume they are God's people, but have no living, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to assume too much and to not take a hold strong enough, personal enough to take hold of him and to know him and to love him personally. Not trusting your heritage or your family as we think of our young people. Not trusting to your family. The the people in synagogue were trusting to their family, that they were a part of it. They were part of the tribe. So surely they're okay. Not trusting in our heritage or our family or our church affiliation, but trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone and not fail to take hold of him. Sometimes I wonder if he will not bypass many a self-righteous churchgoer and save some of the most surprising people that we thought were lost causes. That we would open our eyes, that he would open our eyes to see that his kingdom is for the nations. That he sends us to the most surprising places and the most surprising people get saved. That he would open our eyes to look beyond our tribe and to look down the street and to look down the cubicle row at work. And to think, who do I think that the Lord may not be able to bring? And understand that for them, just like for me, that they will take hold of him. The Lord will command them that the Lord would work and soften and open their hearts, open their heart that they would pay attention to the gospel and to believe that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who will believe. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you reached beyond the borders of what we might expect to save even us. And Father, we thank you for uh, Elijah and his ministry, uh, for the way that he would respond so exactly to your command. And I pray for us here this morning that even as you send us and say, go and make disciples of all nations, that we would arise and go and make disciples of all nations, that we would have our eyes open to see that you are able to save the least and the lost. That we might open our lips and speak the truth. Father, we thank you that you love us this morning, that you speak to us. But We pray again, Father, that it wouldn't be just information we've gathered, but that our lives would come into conformity with your word, and that we would go, arise and go, and make disciples of the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.